0: Hi everyone. This is Christy, your host, and today's episode is sponsored by Ally A L E E, an instructional tool built by former educators and originating out of MIT. Ally provides teachers with scaffolded, differentiated, rigorous, and standards-aligned frameworks and tools for novel studies, adaptable for your specific students. Ally is currently looking for middle school teachers to pilot resources during the remainder of the 22-23 school year. Learn more by searching Ally at EdCuration.com and clicking Pilot Opportunity. You're listening to the EdCuration Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional movements, resources, tools, and practices that are reshaping learning.
1: Across the country, book banning in libraries and schools is gaining momentum. A recent study found more than 1,600 books were banned in more than 5,000 schools in 32 states.
0: Our guest today, Deborah Appleman, spent 10 years as a high school English teacher. When her teaching position was eliminated, she did what educators often do when looking for a next step. She went back to school, and after earning her Ph.D., she ended up teaching at Carleton College in Minnesota. She's been there for 36 years. And since 2017, Deborah has also taught in a high security prison for men. Her experience there became the topic of her first book, Words No Bars Can Hold Literacy Learning in Prison. We'd love to hear more about that on a future episode, but we reached out to Deborah today to learn about the very important and hot topic of her most recent book, Literature and the New Culture Wars. Triggers, cancel culture, and the teacher's dilemma. Deborah's book really helped me personally sort through these current trends impacting not only educators and students, but our culture as a whole. I asked Deborah to start by sharing her
1: impetus for writing the book. Most recently, I have found myself disagreeing with people that I usually agree with and agreeing with people that I usually disagree with, and kind of a flashpoint for me. Personally and professionally, was the cancellation of Sherman Alexi, who I not only admire as a, a writer, as a reader, but I've seen his work be so magical in the diverse city spaces in which I teach. And I felt that we had kind of, you know, overreached in the ways in which we are canceling authors whose works are really valuable for kids because they didn't meet up. With our moral standards. And I've just been wondering about whether we even have the right to do that and whether we are withholding from students some really important texts and experiences. So I decided, even though I was afraid to do it, to write this book because my fear comes from Disagreeing with people that I deeply respect and understand where they're coming from, we're all trying to do the best for kids, and also being uncomfortable finding myself agreeing with um, people that I've usually found on the other side of uh, my teaching philosophy. So that's where we are today.
0: So those experiences were kind of what motivated you with the cancellation of Sherman Alexie and this kind of cognitive dissonance around where you were finding yourself in the middle of the argument. Exactly. And you were feeling trapped in the middle. But in this, I, I think of that, um, that scene in the first, was it the very first Star Wars movie, where he's in that trash compactor, right? And the walls are closing in on him, and it almost... It feels like that when you were, when I was reading your book, I felt that sense. Exactly.
1: exactly. The My first chapter is called Clowns to the re- Left of Me, Jokers to the Right, Here I Am, Stuck in the Middle with You, because yeah. I really do feel the press on both sides. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. And I think that that's one of the things that makes these new culture wars new, that in the past, I think English teachers have been used to complaints from the right of the political and ideological spectrum, from people who were sort of thinking about how suitable particular works were for young people, where censorship about language or content was usually a move that was conservatively made. So it was shocking, and I'm used to that press from the right, and I have some strategies of how to deal with it, both from my professional organizations, from the American Library Association and other places. What I wasn't used to was having things be banned or canceled from people with whom I usually align, people who are interested in social justice, people who are interested in diversifying our curriculum, you know, people who are interested in being able to give kids the freedom to think for themselves And yet the press has come from that side as well. So I definitely feel like I'm being squished in the middle here. These are obscene. So you start with equity and then you move to banning. What's next, Bernie? This is pornography. It's an abuse to our children.
0: The books you are trying to ban have literally made these people feel seen for the first time in their lives.
1: We please ask you to protect our children. And if you can't, we the people will by any means necessary.
0: This is a question that I've had for a long time that I still don't quite understand is I know that there are political forces at work and I know that there are um, social media forces at work here. But typically when we're talking about book banning specifically, Mm -hmm. who's initiating that? Is it parents? I don't think it's teachers. Is it administrators? How is this happening?
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. And I think the answer is all of the above. So there's always been oppressive parents who, um, you know, they rightfully are concerned about being informed by what their kids are reading and being served in school. Um, Some of those parents, while well-intentioned, are deeply misinformed about things like uh, critical race theory or why a teacher would include a book with a character who identifies as LGBTQ+, Uh, Teachers don't include those books to convert people to particular gender identities. They use those books so that students can see themselves in the material that we offer them, that students' identities can be validated and affirmed. I actually don't know any teachers in the K-12 area who are teaching critical race theory exactly as people think that they are. So there is a press of parents who are thinking about that. And then administrators kind of fold uh, in to the pressure of the parents at those raucous school board meetings that we've seen there are always people on the ideological right if we if you will who for based on their own moral code think that certain kinds of books with with certain kinds of scenes of explicitness or language are problematic but there are a group of teachers um and i talk about it in the book who have decided that some some books are just too harmful to present and that includes Works from Shakespeare, Huckleberry Finn, To Kill a Mockingbird. You know um, a whole bunch of works that they want to disrupt, which I think is a fantastic idea to disrupt them. But I think that the way, the only way that you can disrupt texts with kids is to teach them, to teach the controversy, to contextualize it for them, and to not a priori decide that something is not worth uh, teaching. And one of the parts about it that really bother me is that we're also superimposing a kind of moral code on some of the works that it has nothing to do with the book itself. This Mm -hmm. is true for the case of Sherman Alexie, Juno Diaz, and even the cancellation of J.K. Rowling, because of comments she made that were perceived to be transphobic, and now all of a sudden Harry Potter is taken off the shelves. I do not see, number one, a one-to-one correspondence between what an author does or says and the relative literary merit and pedagogical merit of their work. And number two, I'm asking myself, who are we to judge? Who are we to judge the life Choices of someone else, even if we find them abhorrent, and where does that stop? Because with that, well, that's the issue, right? Where does it stop?
0: Right. And you ask the question in your book too: of how far are we willing to go, and yeah. how much are we willing to sacrifice, and yeah. who gets to say, and yeah. who gets to design the rubric through which we pass these approved or disapproved texts? Yes. And I love this idea. That you assert in the book about rather than canceling authors or banning texts, the profit of teaching these troublesome texts through troubling the text. and you use it as a you know, kind of a verb. And i I hope you can help us understand what you mean by that
1: exactly. Yes. I mean, troubling the text is the kind of guiding concept for me throughout the book. And if you don't let a, a text appear in the classroom, you're not troubling it at all. You're just banishing it. By troubling the text, I mean that we actually do the work that English teachers have done for decades, that we situate it in the world in which the book was written, that we carefully examine the beliefs that are animated in the book, both by the author and by the characters, that we consider what seems to fit and what doesn't seem to fit, that we raise important questions about whether actions are justified, and that we debate it together. Now, usually we did that within the world of the text. Now what I'm suggesting is that we expand that to include the question of why are we reading this book? Should Mm -hmm. this book even be read? What are the controversies? And a long time ago, the scholar Jerry Graff talked about teaching the conflicts. So there's a program called Born to Trouble that talks about high school teachers bringing in the controversy of Huck Finn and sharing it with students. You know, as teachers, I believe that we have our own version of the Hippocratic Oath, Ooh. first, do no harm. And I believe that I and all of the English teachers that I know, and I know a lot of them, would never do anything on purpose to harm a student. But I believe that there's a difference between causing discomfort, intellectual dissonance, and causing harm. And one of the things that I've learned as a teacher is to never underestimate the power of students to be able to grapple with some of these important issues. Amen. Right? (laughs) People who have been banning books are actually keeping the choice the ability of students to really grapple with these things from that we've made decisions for them that I don't think we should be making
0: it's such a disservice to them and right. it's a, we're in danger of malpractice but it's a fine line to walk and there's no denying that it's a difficult balance to strike right. because there is an issue, there is an issue of offense and trauma that we also have to be aware of. So help us understand the difference between causing distress, genuine distress and discomfort. And how do we discern that in an instructional setting and make those calls in real time?
1: Yes, that question uh, keeps me up at night. Um, Yeah. I have um, a couple of thoughts about it. One of the thoughts is about choice. And that is that back in the day when I was a high school teacher, you know, if I had 30 kids in a classroom, we would all be reading the same book. And when we were finished with that book, we 30 students would uh, march into the next book and the next one. We had our study guides, we had our activities, and everyone was reading the same book, hopefully at the same time. This is before we understood anything about differentiated instruction. Yeah. (laughs) About the diversity of students, about all of that. Um, And we called those anchor texts and we were happy with that. I really don't think that we can sustain that kind of monolithic practice anymore. So one of the things that I think that can help us as English teachers is to offer a variety of choices all of the time, mm. because different books will cause different people discomfort for different reasons. Sometimes I think we fetishize what causes harm in the classroom, and there's so much mixed Results about what a trigger warning is. You know, sometimes students claim trigger by proxy. Well, I know that there's a scene about incest in this book. And, uh, well, I'm not an incest victim, nor is anyone I know, but someone out there is, and therefore I refuse to read it. Uh, Really? Um, I just don't buy into that. And I also don't buy into the fact that, you know, students will be physiologically affected by certain kinds of things that happen in books. And in my book, there are two quotes that guide this practice one is by kafka who talks about books being the axe that breaks the frozen sea within us that there are ways in which we're supposed to be disrupted and feel things that have been buried and hidden in a ways and i'm not talking about bibliotherapy i'm talking about why we love books in the first place yeah And the other one is by James Baldwin, who thought that, he talks about the fact that he thought that his problems, his troubles, his suffering, he was the only one in the world who was feeling that way, until when? Until he started to read. And then he realized that his questions, his suffering, his thoughts, his tragedies were being experienced by other people. And not only did that knowledge comfort him, it also connected him, and he felt less isolated. We get kind of paid to shepherd students in a moral, careful, judicious, and educated way through some troubled waters. And I think we should keep doing that.
0: Well, and what you said about the trigger warning actually invites the counter-argument of, and when you meet that person who is a victim of incest, where will you gain the empathy and understanding to stand alongside that person if you refuse to expose yourself right. to this content? Right?
1: Exactly. And there's ways in which it's um, it's a claim of privilege, right? Yeah. I mean, it's saying, you know, I don't want to feel this way. Well, I think that one of the things is that we don't really always get to choose how we're going to feel and that when we are experiencing a broad range of feelings about other people, which is ironically why the cancellation of To Kill a Mockingbird is so kind of counterintuitive. When you read a book that teachers have used for decades to teach empathy, to teach that old Atticus maxim of walking around in someone else's shoes, Mm -hmm. precisely because you think that the portrayal of those whose shoes he wanted you to walk in is problematic, then no walk is happening. But I do think we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater half of the time. And also the fact that a lot of the authors who have been cancelled Recently, are authors of color, too, which again mm-hmm. is counterproductive to our project of diversifying the curriculum. Yeah. So, in that incest example I gave you, who's the author that was being canceled? Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison. Right? Who finally broke through the canon, and then there are people who are refusing to read her because of it. I mean, we're like shooting ourselves in, in the foot there. I want to quote
0: from your book. Okay. And have you help us understand better ways and best practices for how to frame these difficult texts and this difficult content for teachers? Because right. there is an issue of skill here as well. And making sure that our teachers are well trained and have the support and the efficacy to keep their students, you know, safe and well cared for and to frame these conversations well. You write, herein lies the challenge. Teachers of literary texts need to find some way to strike a balance between excluding texts that are demeaning, offensive, and downright harmful and retaining texts that include some problematic elements such as language, dialogue, and representation, but have important value aesthetically, historically, and curricularly. So we need to figure out who decides and how do we agree on this, but what suggestions do you have for addressing this challenge of making sure that teachers have the skill and the training to be effective in framing these?
1: Right. Well, the first one is that, the first thing is that I think that we need to um, not be afraid to disagree with each other, to talk to each other about it, you know, and to talk through rather than just kind of in this sort of bifurcated way, say, yes, I'm going to teach this, or no, I'm never going to teach this, to sort of come in the middle in professional development, in curriculum, in professional conversations to say, what are the ways in which this could and should be taught? And what might be the reasons that you would use for deciding what books you're going to be using? I always think of this triangle of the text, the student, and the context, right? And that we have to think about All of those, and I don't think that there's a singular answer. I think it's always contextual. But one of the things that's happening is like you know we're putting a hammer to it all. We're saying never do this, or or always do this, right? And I'm saying let's think about who we're talking about. So I think thinking about a context is a really important thing to do. Thinking about nuancing, thinking about pairing texts. So. You know, you read Huck Finn and you read Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl together. You know, you read things, you do this intertextual thing where the texts are talking to each other. So rather than you ideologically offering why this text shouldn't be offered, you give a literary counterpoint so that the tension is between the texts themselves. And I give um, several suggestions of paired texts. What I challenged myself to do throughout the book so that it wouldn't read like a diatribe was to say, okay, if this is true, then what would that mean for the language arts classroom? Because I can't disappoint my friends who are English teachers by just standing on my soapbox and leaving them high and dry. So I think that there are specific things that we can do, including contextualizing, pairing texts, teaching the controversy to kids, Letting kids make some choices, right, yeah. and not saying that we're deciding once and for all for every text.
0: Yeah, and I I want to congratulate you because you really do achieve that. Your book is is not a rant. Thank you. <laughs> it's not a rant at all, and it's not a um, oh my gosh, what's happening to our country? I mean. You do get a sense of that, but it's full of beautiful strategies. So I would encourage any English teacher who is in the middle of this dilemma to really dive in because you offer some, some lovely strategies. Speaking of novel studies, if you're looking for a standards-aligned, rigorous framework, strategy, and tools for your next novel study, look no further than today's sponsor, Allie. This is Marjorie McEwen, the founder and CEO of Ally, and we're proud to sponsor this episode of the Ed Curation Podcast. At Ally, we believe that technology should be used to empower teachers and not replace them. Our goal is to make teachers' lives easier by providing them with everything they need to teach a novel, all in one place, without compromising quality. For the remainder of the 22-23 school year, Ally is offering a no-risk opportunity to pilot their resources for free. Learn more through the link in the episode notes or by visiting Allie, A L E E, at edcuration.com. I was wondering if you would maybe even just model for us how a teacher might go about framing of mice and men. Or one of the books that was in our curriculum when I worked as a literacy coach was uh, A Good Man Is Hard to Find by Flannery yes. O'Connor. Yeah. And oh my gosh, the the pushback on that text. Um, And we tried and tried to prepare teachers to just focus on that this is a specific genre, but it's, it's a, it's a full of all the things that you could find to complain about in a text are pretty much in that one. So how might we frame these texts?
1: Well, the first thing that I would do in the book, I talk a little bit about presentism, about the fact that we have a tendency to superimpose a 21st century lens of mores and values onto things that happened in the 20th 19th, 18th, 17th, and 16th centuries. So one of the things that I do first is introduce the students to the world in which this text takes place. What happened? Let me give you a specific example. A lot of times people claim that that uh, the merchant of Venice is anti Semitic because Shylock was a moneylender. Yes, and I loved to teach the merchant of Venice. So uh-huh. preach sister. I know. Well, so back in the day, Jews were not allowed to be land owners. Mm -hmm. So it was not an anti-Semitic choice on the part of Shakespeare to give Shylock that occupation. There may be some other things about his portrayal. And I'm speaking as a Jewish person here who taught The Merchant of Venice, There may be some other things about his portrayal that we might want to trouble and problematize, but we can't say he was a moneylender and that's a stereotype and therefore it's problematic. Let's look at the world and look at the choices that were available to the author at the time and how that world of the text animates that. So that's the first thing that I would do. You know, the second thing I would do is to ask students what about their characteristics as a reader would be important for them as we enter into this text, right? So, for example, when we were reading Ordinary People, um, when I was a high school teacher, that's how old I am, there's like something, a loss of a sibling. Right, So let's talk a little bit about about family. I'm not talking about this in a bibliotherapy kind of way, but sort of like what's important for you to know and what's important changes on the book. So if I'm reading Anne of Green Gables, it's important to know that I have red hair right? If I'm reading The Diary of Anne Frank, it's important to know that I'm Jewish. If I'm reading Ordinary People, it's important to know that I lost a brother too, right? If I'm reading 13 Reasons Why, it's important to know that I've been to too many funerals of kids who you know, committed suicide. So sometimes one of the things that we can do is to foreground, and this is like reader response 101, foreground the reader characteristics that might inform how we are going to enter into the text and to deal with them. That's another thing. Another thing I would do, as we talked about before, is to pair the text, always have an escape hatch. So if something becomes too difficult, too problematic, too controversial, too controversial, for a class, for a student, for a community. Okay, notebook is worth that. I love books. I love people more. Notebook is worth that. So thinking always, you know, kind of about plan B. The other thing that I would say is write letters to parents, talking to them about what you're up to and why, what you've chosen and why, inviting them into your classroom, because I think that they don't always understand what it is that we're doing and how we're doing it. And a skilled discussion about a tricky topic might alleviate their fears in some ways too. And then talking to each other more about the choices that we're making and not being as dogmatic about those choices and being open-minded and trying to see the other side. Because in the end, that's what we're trying to teach kids, right? We we don't want to continue to live in such a divided society. Well, we won't live in... Th- in anything but a divided society if we don't teach young people to see the other side, as uncomfortable as that other side might be. And I think that's what reading troubled texts can do for us.
0: I love that. Thank you so much. Um, I want to zero in on one tiny point here. It leads back to "To Kill a Mockingbird and so many of the other texts that we've talked about is that the, one of the common complaints about the text is just the use of pejorative language, particularly the N-word. Mm-hmm. And it's especially complicated by the fact that a lot of the close reading models that we are learning to use now as teachers to engage students in increasingly complex texts require a read aloud and include a lot of reading aloud by the teacher and by, um, you know, students within the class. So how do we just get around the offense and discomfort of reading those texts aloud that are full of pejorative language?
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, The first thing that I would say is that it depends on who's doing the reading. Sometimes it lands differently. If a teacher of color is saying the word, it lands differently depending on who's saying it, number one. Number two, even with read aloud strategies, it, we don't have to say that word out loud, especially when we're teaching kids to read with context clues and things like that. If that's the one word in the sentence that you're not reading, they're seeing it with their own two eyes. You don't have to read it out loud if the reading out loud of it feels like an assault. Third, pre-teaching that word, talking about why it exists, talking about the different context in which it lives is also something that's really important. And fourth, thinking about people like James Baldwin, who would turn over in his grave if we used a substitute for that word. The word is a weapon. The word hurts our heart. And the word is a weapon that makes us think about systemic racism in America. And that rather than stay away from the fact that it's being used, talk about what was the world in which it was still used? Why is that problematic? What's going on now? And pre-teaching it, talking about it, and also giving kids and families the opportunity to opt out, that word can be extremely harmful. But I think that short of never teaching that book. There are other ways that people way smarter than I am have come up with to try to use it. Mm -hmm.
0: And it is an all, it's an important piece of historical representation. When I think about Of Mice and Men, which was another one of my favorite books to teach. Right. It was an accurate representation of each during that time period and among that demographic. So it's a little hard to get around it.
1: Absolutely.
0: I want to focus for just a minute, and this honestly could be its own episode talking just about cancel culture. But cancel culture is a big part of what is right now narrowing our literary and artistic canon. (laughs) And you ask in your book, how far are we willing to go to rid the curriculum of anyone whose behavior is problematic, regardless of the quality of their work? So you said a little bit about this earlier. You said that you don't see a one-to-one correlation necessarily between a person and their work and that who are we to judge. And and I actually agree with you, but I know that there are people who are struggling to separate a body of work from the behavior of its creator. And I think not only about Sherman Alexie, but other arenas like Bill Cosby and Michael right. Jackson, right? So, talk to those people who are struggling to separate those things.
1: Right. What I would say to those people is we're human beings. Human beings are fallible. Human beings, good human beings, sometimes do bad things. That's the big lesson I've learned from teaching in the prison for 15 years. The first question is do we want to appoint ourselves as the moral arbiters of other people? Uh, Number two, Um, I've learned that one of the most important things that we can learn to do is to forgive rather than punish. So what is the point of, of denying these works? Is it really punishing someone? What is the motivation? What are your reasons for not wanting to do it? Number three, the question of where does it end? I really do believe that our museum walls would be empty. And we would not be able to listen to almost any piece of music or read anything on a bookshelf if we superimposed a kind of moral standard that everyone should live up to. And this is not to excuse the behavior of people who are serial offenders like Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein, or even for that matter, Sherman Alexie.
0: At this point, we got interrupted by Siri, who responded to something we were saying and chimed up from Debra's phone. But she made this statement that I really didn't want you to miss because I feel like it's a pivotal truth. She reminded us that art is so often, probably more often than not, the product of complicated and troubled human beings. In other words, the correlation between great art and messed up people is really high. Are we going to start burning the works of Picasso because talk
1: about a womanizer? We need to do a cost-benefit analysis. You know, if I look at a young Native student in a classroom at South High School in Minneapolis, and I say to myself, what is more relevant to this young person? Learning about what a creeper um, Sherman Alexie is, that he is a misogynist and betrayed his wife and other female writers, Or that he gets a sense, an ability to see himself reflected in the pages of a book, something that he's been waiting for for a long time. And I do not buy the argument of different people being replaceable. I admire Tommy Orange. But Tommy Orange does not write the same way that Sherman Alexie writes, and I don't want us to be so reductive that we're putting people in slots just based on their identity and saying it doesn't matter. You would never do that with a white writer and say, we'll read this white writer instead. So I don't think we should do that with African-American writers, Native writers, and other BIPOC writers either. All teachers are going to teach based on their own ethics, morality, their own experiences too. We get to do that. You know, that's part of the responsibility and the beauty of being a teacher. So don't teach anything that you don't believe in. I truly believe that. But I think let's not make it this all or nothing thing where they should never be taught by anyone at any time for any reason and be removed from the library shelves like Sherman Alexi was just because you don't want to teach it. you don't want to teach it, don't teach it.
0: Yeah. so you make a really valuable point there in that it's one thing to say I just can't enjoy that music anymore because what of what I know. it just reminds me of of negative things now versus I am now becoming an activist. Against that person and trying to mandate that nobody be allowed to access that person's content. Those are two completely different things.
1: Absolutely. And,
0: yeah. And it, it, it you you make the point in your book that it's it's not just bordering, like it's crossed the border into outright bullying. And we are condoning this bullying culture against
1: exactly.
0: creators. And oftentimes it's being initiated by people. Who haven't read the book?
1: Oh, that's so true. We have to think about what is it that we model for young people when we make these choices? Do we really want to model bullying for young people who, you know, for whom bullying is like literally threatening their life and livelihoods? Really, do we really want to have that kind of discourse on Twitter, on Instagram, on the airwaves? So, being fair, being open minded providing the whole context for things. Isn't that the kind of grown-up that we want young people to grow into? And they won't unless we model it in our classrooms.
0: We're raising and training critical thinkers. Exactly. I want to focus in on something else that you said too, so that I make sure we kind of bring it out a little bit more, is this error of thinking that we can simply substitute one work of literature for a maybe more sanitized or acceptable work of literature because it's all about skills. Right. Um what do our students lose when we fall back on that as some kind of a realistic solution to this?
1: What we lose is so you and I became English teachers because we fell in love with individual books and the worlds that were created. And that's and we don't want reading to be reduced to a set of skills that you could get from reading a newspaper article or something online. they lose the magic of the world that's created by talented writers in ways that can't be replicated any other way. They lose the ability to kind of feel deeply and to question why they're feeling what they're feeling. They lose the opportunity to ask critical questions about the world that's being presented to them, as well as about the author. They lose the chance to sort of see themselves in relationship to other people. They lose the ability to be literate and to be able to experience, like, some linguistic tapestries that can't be created by the kind of clear, declarative, workbook-type skills that are reduced. That's one of the things that I talk about in my opening anecdote where the high school that I taught in banned of mice and men and told parents, don't worry, we're still teaching them reading skills. Well, mice and men is not a workbook. One of the things to think about is that none of these books were written so that they could be taught by English teachers, Right. They're artistic expressions of something. And Mm -hmm. we're lucky enough to be able to teach them, but it's not the same thing as as a workbook.
0: Yeah, so beautiful. I just, I remember one of my 10th grade students when I was teaching of Mice and Men, it's still one of my favorite teacher moments, where we were looking at the foreshadowing that Steinbeck does throughout the novel. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: she had this moment where she said, I now understand why this is a classic. Mm -hmm. All of that stuff is in there on purpose. Right. And she had this moment of understanding
1: a writer's craft. Right. That was just electrifying. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, to your point, I love that epiphany that you shared about the student for sure. But I don't want my argument to be mistaken for an argument for preserving classics no matter what. Yeah. I mean, I think it was Mark Twain himself who said, Classic is a book that everybody talks about, but no one has read. Mm-hmm. I mean, I embrace the diversification of the curriculum. You know, I embrace replacing certain texts. I mean, I'm old, and the 10 most commonly taught books when I was in high school are basically intact now, same, now right? Years later. Uh, yeah. But. My point is that some of the books that have cracked the canon, some of the authors who have made it to the canon, like Toni Morrison, like Sherman Alexie, are the very ones who are under attack right now. So that's another important thing to consider. This is not an argument for the pres- preservation of a book for its own sake. It's an argument for thinking more liberally, more generously, more capaciously about what our students can face with our help and what we should be offering them.
0: Thank you. Yes. So good. For the teacher who's listening and trying to decide either what text to teach or whether or not to teach a specific text, what would be your short list of key considerations for that teacher?
1: My short list of key considerations would be, why do you want to teach this book? What is the purpose of you for teaching it? What, Who are your students and what are the ways in which this book might land? in difficult and uncomfortable ways what support do you have in case it lands in problematic ways from your colleagues and from the your administration and from the community what would your plan b have if you couldn't teach this book and the final question that i would ask is Do you believe in this book enough to be courageous enough to teach it? Um, Because I do think that every time a teacher walks into a classroom, it is an incredible and beautiful act of courage. And I think that you need to teach something because you believe in it. And that belief will take you a really long way.
0: Book is Literature and the New Culture Wars Triggers Cancel Culture and the Teacher's Dilemma by Deborah Appleman. You'll find the link in the episode notes along with Deborah's website, links to her other writings, and a few other compelling articles about book banning. You'll also find a link to today's sponsor, Ally the New York City Charter Network superintendent said, I think our kids could have a better literary learning experience because of how much Ally supports the teacher to plan and build with criticality and intention. You can learn more about Ally and their free pilot opportunity at edcuration.com. Thank you for joining us to learn more about this important topic. And we hope you'll be back again next week to reshape learning with the Ed Curation podcast.